He is. Let's read together Luke 24, verse 25 to 31. Then Jesus said to them, You foolish people, you find it so hard to believe all that the prophets wrote in the scriptures. Wasn't it clearly predicted that the Messiah would have to suffer all these things before entering his glory? Then Jesus took them through the writings of Moses and all the prophets, explaining from all the scriptures the things concerning himself. By this time they were nearing Emmaus and the end of their journey. Jesus acted as if he were going on, but they begged him, Stay the night with us, since it is getting late. So we went home with them. As they sat down to eat, he took the bread and blessed it. Then he broke it and gave it to them. Suddenly their eyes were opened, and they recognized him, and at that moment he disappeared. in John 20 and also in Luke. Let's pray. Lord, thank you. Thank you for your word. Thank you for how clear it is. Thank you for the teachings about the cross and the death. But especially today, Lord, we celebrate the resurrection. And we are so thankful that we serve a risen Savior. We serve the King of Kings, our Lord Jesus. Guide us this morning now as we study. Speak to our hearts. May we learn and may we obey. We ask this in your name. Amen. Please be seated. Uh, those sheets that uh, were mentioned are on that back table. What I like about it is it's a, someone has done all the work of putting the chronology in place. Because you aren't going to get one, two, three, four resurrection appearances by reading just Luke or just Matthew. You have to read all four of them. And they've actually done that work for you. And you can see exactly how many appearances they were and where the references for those. And so... Uh, Pick one of those up if that's uh, something that interests you. Uh, maybe you've read the story of the things that happened at Los Alamos, New Mexico. Uh, scientists during World War II were trying to figure out how do we do something with um, uranium in order to cause a chain reaction that can be used as a bomb. And of course, they had never done anything like that, so they were working dif- with difficult situations. And one of the tests they were doing is they had a, a lead kind of a tray, and then they would take two pieces of U-235 uranium, they'd bring them close together, and at some point a reaction would start. And then they'd pull them apart, and they'd measure all of these things. And, and as they measured them, they got some of the readings that they needed. But at one point, and they've been doing this for a very long time, these kinds of tests, and, and at one point, just as they were doing this, the, the, man, the young man who was doing this was a, was a physicist, and as he went to push them together, Something slipped and the two actually connected. And it's that point where there was a huge reaction and um, he could have saved his own self by ducking and getting under the table perhaps, but instead he thought of the seven people behind him. He reached in with his fingers and separated the two spheres of uranium that were there. Um, his name was Louis Slotten, and in doing what he did, he saved seven people's lives, but he died nine days later from the, what happened with the, the uranium. And, and, and think about the self-sacrifice here. Here's a man who said in his head, he, very, very quickly, thinking, if I'm going to save everybody else, then I need 
to do this. And he did it. And in doing that, I believe, lived out the words that Jesus said in John. Greater love has no man than this, that he laid down his life for his friends. That's what he did. Now, 2,000 years ago, on a much broader scale, Jesus came, and that's exactly what he did. Facing the darkness and the sin and the hideous things that had happened in this world because of Satan, he came and challenged all of that. And he himself died and then rose again. And so he came, he was crushed, he died, and, and on some level maybe even Satan thought he had won a victory, but three days later it was very clear he had not won a victory that Jesus Christ conquered sin and death. Romans 5, 6 puts it this way. You see, at just the right time, when we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. That's me, and that's you. There's a point in time and space where God said, we've got to take care of this. The only way to do this is for Jesus to live a perfect life and to die for the sins of every person, to die for them. And so on Friday evening, we celebrated the death of Jesus and his sacrifice for all. But if that's all we had to celebrate was Good Friday, what would be the point? And, and, and the reality is, I'm so thankful it isn't just Good Friday, but it's Easter as well. 1 Corinthians 15 says, And if Christ has not been raised, our preaching is useless, and so is your faith. Paul had a real good grasp of what the life and death and resurrection of Jesus was all about. And he makes it very clear. You know what? If Jesus didn't rise from the dead, then everything we do doesn't matter. It doesn't matter if you preach the gospel. It doesn't matter if you tell these things because we're just all lost in our sins. And so the resurrection is the key. And we're thinking about Jesus, his death, and all of that is powerful and it had to happen. But rising from the dead was the culmination of all that God had planned. So the death came, he was buried, but then the the success of all of it was being raised from the dead in power and in majesty. So let's go to John chapter 20, and we'll just start there very quickly this morning and just kind of look at three different scenarios uh, of the resurrection today. First one, John 20. Early on the first day of the week, while it was still dark... Mary Magdalene went to the tomb and saw that the stone had been removed from the entrance. Uh, So she goes, she sees the stone's gone, she runs back, finds Simon uh, Peter and the other disciple, John, um, and, and she said, hey, they've taken the Lord out of the tomb, I don't know where he is, I don't know where they've put him. So here's a chronology, basically, and some of this would be on that sheet, That I, actually a lot more will be on that sheet. First thing that happened was the angel rolled the stone away, not to let Jesus out, but to let people in so they could actually see. The women visited the tomb, and that we find in the book of Mark, and then Mary Magdalene ran back to tell Peter and John, and that's where we are in John chapter 20. The other women saw angels as Mary was going back to get the disciples, and the angel spoke to them and told them Jesus had risen, and so they started back, and then they crisscross somewhere in the middle there, and Peter and John finally get to the tomb. So they get to the tomb, and we'll pick that up in the next verse here, in verse 3. <clears throat> so Peter and the other disciples start for the tomb. 
And both were running, but the other disciple outran Peter. So Peter and John are both going. John is younger, perhaps, and faster, certainly, and he gets to the tomb first. He bends over, he looks in, and he sees what's in there, but he does not go in. And it's perhaps John is thinking, you know, if there's a body in there, I don't want to become ceremonially unclean. And so he kind of just stayed out. Peter finally gets there, and look at what it says. Simon Peter, who was behind him, arrived and went into the tomb. So it's like Peter got there, didn't pause, just went straight on in. That's what Peter was doing. And then it says he saw the strips of linen lying there, as well as the burial cloth that had been around Jesus' head. The cloth was folded up by itself in a separate place. And so Peter went in, and the word here in the Greek is that he observed attentively. He looked at it and, and studied it and looked around, and he saw the grave clothes, and he saw the other one that was folded up. And then Luke tells us this in Luke twenty four twelve, Bending over, he saw the strips of linen lying there themselves, and he went away wondering to himself what had happened. So he goes in the tomb, it's empty, he sees all of the evidence there, and he weighs it all carefully and says, gee, I wonder what happened. That's his response. Verse 8, picking it back up in, in John, finally the other disciple, John, went into the tomb and went inside and he saw and believed. This is really important at this point. Um, John hadn't seen Jesus yet. He saw all the same stuff that everybody else eventually saw. He saw Peter went in and looked at it all. John went in, looked at it all, and said, ah, He's alive. This is awesome. Jesus is alive. And um, verse 9, John tells us that all of them still did not understand from the Scripture that Jesus had to rise from the dead. So they're still dealing with what they've been thinking all along. Isn't it horrible? Isn't it terrible? Jesus has been killed. He's in the grave, and now the grave's empty, and Peter doesn't have any idea what's going on. And, and again, think of, think, of the, think of John, the very first one of everybody to believe. He's the one, looked at it, saw the evidence, and said, yep, yep, he's alive. He believed it. So, and when it says he saw, in this case, it's the whole idea of perceived. He perceived and he understood what was going on. Um, and, and again, just think of all that's going on here. You've got an empty tomb. You've got empty brave, grave clothes. I mean, if someone was actually going to move the body, they wouldn't unroll it and leave the clothes behind and just take the body. I mean, just even thinking it through on a common sense level, that doesn't make sense. And yet that, that was not where they were at. They weren't able to, 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 Peter wasn't able to see it that way. But John looked at it and said, yep, the Lord Jesus just rose from the dead. So his faith in believing the evidence in the empty tomb is, is incredible when you think about it. Um, <clears throat> imagine how his feelers had felt. The, the disciples and everyone had felt. Jesus died. They did not expect that, even though he had told them, this is what's coming. I am going to go. I'm going to die. And he even said, I'm going to rise again. None of that got through to him. And so here they are. They're devastated. They're sad. They're beyond hope. And now they've been to the tomb. And in Peter's case, and the others, well, you know, I have no clue. I don't know what's going on here. It's interesting. We think of the, the swing in emotions. And we're going to see a little bit of that as we go along here. I mean, you've got the devastation and no hope whatsoever. And then all of a sudden, You've got a, a live Jesus who's ascended and, and is going to ascend into heaven and, and the power of the risen Christ and the change that, that would make in their emotions. And 
<clears throat> I just want to share this story. I may have even shared it before, but um, some friends of mine from Michigan they used to work at camp with, uh, their daughter was one of the students in the Taylor University van, April 6, 20, 2006, that was coming home from somewhere, nine of them, and they hit a semi, and five of them died at the scene. Two of the young ladies were very similar in their looks, but, you know, with what happened in the trauma of the accident, um, two of them got misidentified. And so um, the Van Ryans were told, your daughter's alive. She's in the hospital. Come, be with her. And so they did. And the other family was told, we're really sorry, but your daughter died. And so they had a funeral and a burial. Well, as time went on, the young lady that was in the hospital started to be able to communicate again and started to be able to say, I'm, I'm not Laura. <laughs> That's not who I am. And they discovered the mistake that had been made. So stop and think of what, what that would do for the Sarek family when they hear your daughter whom you buried in the cemetery. Well, that wasn't your daughter. You better come down to the hospital. She's alive. Wow, what a huge swing in emotions. And that's what happened to the apostles. He's dead. We saw it. We watched it. They put him in the tomb. There's no way anybody lived through that. And that was their thinking. And so the resurrection, Peter goes in there and he's trying to figure out what's going on, but he can't get over the fact that he saw Jesus die. He can't get over that. <clears throat> so they, at this point, they're at that point, some of them have, have gone from total despair, like John, into, wow, incredible hope and wonder, and yet others haven't gotten to that point yet, and, and Jesus is just starting that process of showing himself to all of them. <clears throat> In the next, uh, just kind of some implications here. Um, John was the first one to believe, but he wasn't the first one to see Jesus. Okay? Um, there were num several others saw Jesus before John, along with all the disciples, saw him. So uh, let's look at the order, and this is the order right here. Mary Magdalene at the tomb was the first one who actually saw Jesus. The other women saw him. Then he met with Peter by himself, and then the travelers on the road to Emmaus. That's kind of the, the sequence of how the first appearances went. And so John was the first one to believe, but he was way down the list before he actually got to see Jesus. And I started thinking about that. Why didn't Jesus come to John? I mean, after all, he's the one who believed. Shouldn't he kind of get a little bit of a reward for that? And, and uh, you know, that, dang, that's sinful thinking on my part, I know. But the reality is John didn't feel that way. John saw Jesus. He was excited about it. And then Jesus appeared to everybody else, everybody else before he appeared to, to John. Um, you wonder what would have happened. Um, you know, I, and I, I think about it, and, and I think about, you know, the fact that here you've got someone who already did believe, and, and someone who at one point in time had, had take, told his mom, hey, mom, would you talk to Jesus and see if you can get the, the throne on either side of Jesus to be, you know, James and me? And, um, you know, that's kind of an arrogant attitude to try to get Jesus to promise those positions. And, and yet, I think one of the reasons that we, we appreciate John and love John and know that he didn't react that way is that he's lived for three and a half years now with Jesus, He's listened to him. He's talked, heard him talk. He's heard him, watched him heal. He's, he saw him calm a storm with a word and drive a legion of demons out of a man. He saw all of these things. And so the person that's sitting there now 
when everybody else is still kind of saying, eh, you know, there's an empty tomb, but it can't, be a, he's a, it can't be anything other than someone stole it. I mean, he's sitting there, and he's okay with the fact that so far he's the only one that knows, and that he hasn't even seen Jesus, but he believes. And I, and I thought about myself, and I thought, you know, are there times when I'm upset by how good God treats somebody else because I'm jealous or because I desperately want him to treat me in that way? Um, Back in Detroit many, many years ago, um, for some reason, we ended up buying a whole series of really bad cars. I mean, a whole bunch of them, six or seven of them in a row just kind of all blew up. And, and um, <clears throat> matter of fact, we had one car someone gave us that our daughters nicknamed Dead Rosie because it was such an awful car. I mean, it smelled bad and there was... It was, it was horrible, but we had all these cars, and, and it was, we just struggled all the time just to keep one of them, one of them running. I was at church one day, and a friend of mine, Pete, came by, and he was so excited. He said, you know, I, I, my neighbor is, it works for the car company, and he was going to turn this car in and get a new one, but they were giving him such a low deal on, on, on the, the car that he wanted to turn in that he offered it to me, and it was, you know, just peanuts for this beautiful car he was getting. And I sat there internally and thought, oh, man, Lord, I need a car more than he does. What's wrong with this? And uh, as I'm thinking through that, the Lord kind of rebuked me. Pete took off, and, and, and the Lord, I was asked this question in my conscience. Why didn't you rejoice with Pete because of the gift I gave him? I went, wow. And you know, those are the kinds of things that, those are subtle many times, and maybe we don't even recognize or we try to ignore them. And yet for me, it was a real awakening in the sense that I said, okay, God, you blessed him. I should be thrilled for your blessing in his life and thankful for whatever you do in mine. And I should be willing to continue to walk, to learn, and to serve. And I think John the Apostle was someone who was doing that kind of a thing right then. You know what? Other people get to see him. That's okay. I know he's alive. I believe he's alive. We move on in uh, John 20 to verse 10. Um, now, this section that's, that's here, it's interesting. I was studying through it this week, and, and a number of authors uh, who are experts in that time frame and culture uh, were saying this, and I'll just quote this one. No Jewish author in the ancient world would have invented a story with a woman as the first witness to this most important event. Uh, think about that, because the first person who actually sees Jesus is Mary Magdalene. So let's put up the sequence of events there. Um, these are just things that Mary did. She went to the empty tomb. She went to the tomb early with the other women. It was empty. She returns to tell the disciples about the empty tomb, and they take off, and then she goes back to the empty tomb herself. And after everybody kind of comes and goes, and John comes out kind of grinning, and Peter's standing there going, gee, I don't know what's going on, and they both left. She's standing there, and everybody else is gone. And that's when she sees Jesus. Look at verse 10. The disciples went back to their homes. Mary stood outside the tomb crying. And as she wept, she bent over and looked into the tomb and saw two angels who were seated where Jesus' body had been, one at the head and one at the foot. And they asked her, woman, why are you crying? And she says, they've taken away my Lord. And I don't know where they have put him. I love Mary's response. I love her heart for the Lord. 
one of those things where to whom much has been forgiven, you know, they love much, those who have been forgiven much, and Mary would certainly be one of those. But, you know, Peter looked inside the tomb, looked all around, and he went home saying, gee, I wonder what happened. John looked inside the tomb, saw the evidence there, and believed Jesus is alive. Mary saw it, didn't understand it, but she wasn't going anywhere. If someone had taken Jesus and put him somewhere else or was trying to desecrate his body, she did not want to have any part of that. So she hung around and was waiting. And it's in that time period that Jesus comes and meets her. Um, Verse 14. At this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing there. She did not realize that it was Jesus. So she didn't realize she was talking to angels. She's still, you know, really upset and wondering who took Jesus' body. And, and finally, you know, she turns around, sees, sees this guy, and she thinks it's the gardener, and says, hey, you know, where did you take the body? I'll, I'll, I'll take care of it. Just let me do it. And you see her, her desire to make sure that Jesus was honored in his death. That's what she wanted. And then, verse 16, Jesus said, Mary. Is that her name? And she turned toward him, and cried out in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. And it's actually very much more possessive than that. It's my teacher. <clears throat> she recognized the voice, and she responded to that. And uh, so she turns, and, and she kneels before Jesus, and she's probably hugging him around the knees, and he says, don't hold on to me, but go and tell the disciples. And he gives her a message that he he wants her to give to them. It's interesting, though, as, as I thought about the fact that he said Mary and she recognized him, it made me think of John 10, 3. A shepherd comes to the pen where all the sheep are kept, and the sheep listen to his voice. He calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. And the sheep follow him, for they know his voice. She couldn't see She didn't get the angels. She didn't get any of what was going on, but she recognized his voice. What a cool thing. I wonder, do we recognize his voice when he speaks to us in our conscience, speaks to us through his word? Are we ready and willing to say, oh, man, Lord, thank you for speaking to me on that. The question then becomes, why did Jesus appear to Mary instead of, you know, John, for instance, or somebody else? I mean, culturally, it's totally against the culture, (laughs) which is why I love it. I love the fact that Jesus did that. But Jesus had all kinds of followers that he could have appeared to, but he chose Mary. And he chose Mary, when you you go back and remember what Mary has lived through, she was demon-possessed. Seven demons were living in her, and Jesus tossed them out. And at that point, then she began to have a changed life. I mean, she had life filled with horrors, if you can imagine, being possessed and and living the kind of life that that might have meant for her um, as she was being used and abused uh, by Satan and and his demons. Now, Jesus sets her free, and the demons are gone, and she spends the rest of her time that Jesus is alive, following after him and providing in any way that she could services for Jesus and, and the others. And, and, and you always hear of Mary mentioned with Jesus. 
Um, she's at the foot of the cross, all four Gospels mention that. And um, she's um, also in the resurrection appearances, they mention her as well. And so her devotion to the Lord just comes through very clearly. Um, Jesus had forgiven her. Think about that. And all of the things that she had lived through. And her response was devote herself to devote herself to serving Jesus. And after he died, she's still trying to do something because she does not want to see his body dishonored in any way. It's interesting because down through the years I've had people say, Mark, you know, you don't know what I've done and, I, and I'm sure God can't forgive me. And, and uh, others who say, you know what, there's no way. I mean, you know, I know Jesus forgives sinners, but my list is way too long. Um, or no way, he can't, he can't care about me like you're saying. Well, every time I have someone say, I say, listen, you need to understand what you're believing right now about Jesus is a lie right out of the pits of hell. Jesus died for you. That's the truth. And you can believe that or not, but it's your choice. Jesus died for you and he loves you. And Mary Magdalene is part of that proof, isn't she? I mean, here's a woman who for, nobody would have given her even the time of day. And Jesus kicks the demons out and he takes this woman and he transforms her to such a point that she's serving him as long as he's there. And even after Jesus is gone, her thoughts are still all about Jesus. First Corinthians, I love what Paul says to the church in Corinth as he's trying to get them to understand a little bit about the change that happened in them. And he says this to the church in Corinth, chapter 1, verse 26. Brothers, think of what you were when you were called. And, and I love the way he puts this. Not many of you were wise. In other words, eh, you guys weren't so bright uh, by human standards. Not many of you were influential. Yeah, you weren't influential either. Not many of you were of noble birth. Nope, you were all commoners. Um, but God chose the foolish things. Again, he's talking to them. They're the foolish things. Chose the foolish things of this world to shame the wise. He chose the weak things of this world to shame the strong. He chose the lowly things of this world, the despised things of this world, the things that are not. He said, hey, you guys in Corinth, that, that's you who I'm talking about. And he chose all of these things to nullify the things that are so that no one may boast before him. And so he's trying to say, listen, you were saved, but it had nothing to do with you. Your abilities, your gifts, your station in life, nothing, none of it. And then he says, it is because of him that you are in Christ. And remember, Jesus is the reason we have a relationship. When we put our faith and trust in him and we believe he enters into our hearts and into our lives, and it's then that we are also in Christ. And when we are in Christ, nothing can touch us. We're forgiven. And that's what, that's what comes through so clearly in what Paul is saying here, because of him, you have a relationship and you are in Christ. And then he goes on to say, who has become for us the wisdom of God, <clears throat> that is our righteousness, holiness, and redemption. And he doesn't go any further in explaining these words, but this is exactly what was going on as he was trying to say um, these three words. 
Righteousness is a whole idea of justification. We're declared just and perfect in God's eyes because of what Jesus did. So when I believe that Jesus died for me, I'm forgiven and I am justified. I stand before him and he doesn't see sin. He sees Jesus Christ's sacrifice for me. And then he sees me through that, if you will, as a lens. He sees me as holy because of what Christ did. The word holiness is really the whole idea of being sanctification. So you're justified. That's your position in Christ. We're sanctified, and that's our walk with him as we continue to grow and as we continue to pursue to love and honor and surrender to him and as we obey him in our daily lives. That sanctification continues to bring us closer and closer to him. And then ultimately, there will be the whole idea of glorification when we will be made like him because we will see him as he is, and we become like him in that sense, and, and uh, then all of eternity takes place from there. And so Paul's talking to the Corinthians, he's saying, hey, none of you guys deserved any of this. Man, look at, look at who you were, but this is who you are in Christ. This is who you are. And so Jesus specializes in taking broken, bruised lives and putting them back together. He redeems and sets people free, and Mary Magdalene is a great example of that. Another one is John Newton, if you've ever read the story, this was a man who was a captain of a slave ship and we made all kinds of runs back and forth from Africa to the Americas. And he was basically trafficking in the lives of others and the misery of others. Well, somewhere in that whole process, the Lord God got a hold of him and changed his heart and he left all that. He became a pastor and a hymn writer. And the song that we all know that he wrote, Amazing Grace, How Sweet the Sound that saved a wretch like me. He knew what he was like. He knew what he had done. And he says, I once was lost, but now I'm found. I was blind, but now I see. And so you look at that, and you look at Mary Magdalene, and you say, is there hope for, any, for those of us that are struggling, those that are thinking there's no hope at all? Yes, there's always hope. And Jesus Christ offers forgiveness and hope and strength and help. So the thought then is, Turn to him. There's hope for me. There's hope for you. If you've never turned to Christ, if you've never actually put your faith and trust and said, Lord Jesus, I know that you died for me. I believe that, and I want you to change my heart. Save me, because I can't save myself. If you'd like to talk further, I'd love to talk with you about that. But it's that kind of a thing. If you can't point to that in your life, that you had that moment, then I challenge you to think that through. It's believing in Christ that saves us, nothing else. We can't earn it. We don't deserve it. But he gives it freely. I'm going to go to the two people on the road to Emmaus. Luke chapter 24, starting in verse 13. That same day, two of them were going to a village called Emmaus. And it's about a seven-mile walk. So stop and think about these people. This is the same day as all of these things have happened. And later in the afternoon, they decide, well, you know what? We don't know really what's happened, but we might as well go home and sleep in our own beds. So they start walking for home. As they're walking that seven miles, all of a sudden, Jesus kind of is walking along beside them and hearing what they're saying and talking about. And they're talking about what had happened in Jerusalem and, and, and what had happened to Jesus. And how he, maybe they're talking about the coming in on the donkey and then how people turned on him and he was arrested and convicted and crucified. And as he's listening to them... Jesus comes alongside, 
And this is what they said about Jesus. He was a prophet of Nazareth. He was a prophet, powerful in the word, powerful in deed. Um, God and the people, the chief priests, they wanted him dead, so they arrested him and convicted him. Look at verse 21, though. These are the guys on the way to Emmaus. But we had hoped that he was the one who was going to redeem Israel. He said, we believed he was the Messiah. We were waiting for him. And then this happened. And then he said, this morning we got some strange things happening. Some women said they saw angels, and some of them were talking about resurrection, and, and um, you know, the tomb is empty, but, you know, we're going home. And so they're heading home. I love the fact that it says they had hoped he was the Messiah and, and, and that there were rumors of the empty tomb and that the women said they saw angels. But the reality is, if you look in the other Gospels, they, they listened to the women and Mary, but didn't believe them. They didn't believe their testimony that they had seen Jesus, they had seen angels. And in verse 25, Jesus says this to these guys, how foolish you are and slow of heart to believe all the prophets have spoken Did not the Christ have to suffer these things and then enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and the prophets, he explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. Now, wouldn't you want to be in that Bible study? That would be amazing. Did he start in Genesis where he said, yeah, well, you know what? The the snake's head is going to get stomped by the Messiah. The snake's going to bite him, but that's okay. He will eventually stomp on the snake's head. Maybe he talked about the call of Abraham and some of the things that happened with that. Or, or maybe he talked about Moses and the exodus and the blood being put over the door frames. Or, or maybe further on when the law was given and they were talked about the, the Passover lamb and those sacrifices that had to be done. Maybe it was Isaiah 53 that he took them through as he talked about the lamb that was taken to be slaughtered. We don't know. They invite him to come in and stay with them because they're, you know, they've been walking for seven miles. And he took bread when, at the supper table when they were together and he broke it and began to give it to them. And bing, their eyes are opened and they understand who this is. But that's the end of the conversation because Jesus is no longer there. He's just gone, which is another thing that we know about is he's resurrected. He can pass through things as if they, as if they weren't there. And so again, I'd love to have heard the Bible study. Didn't have a chance to. I'm sure he covered, I mean, seven miles, a long way to walk. They had all kinds of time to talk through these things. Um, then, in verse 32 and following, they get up and they say, you know what, we've got to go back and tell people about this. And so they walk seven miles back to Jerusalem in order to give the good news. When they get there, they discover that Peter has seen the Lord and that others have seen the Lord, and that now they come and tell their story, and so everybody is rejoicing powerfully over what Jesus has done. So what do we take away from all of this? I think uh, there's a couple lessons from the people on the road to Emmaus that we get. One is that they were just plain, ordinary people. They weren't high priests, and they weren't Pharisees, and they weren't, uh, you know, anybody that was wealthy that we know of. As a matter of fact, only one of them, we only know one of their names. The other one's not even named. And yet, these are the people Jesus spends the most time with. He walks with them and talks with them, and he tells them all about 
the things that are going on in Scripture. And, and maybe the reason Jesus appeared to them in this way is that these are just common, ordinary people who had hoped desperately that Jesus was the Messiah and were broken over the fact that it appeared that he was not. And so Jesus comes to them and teaches them, and I imagine that they got to tell that story a whole lot of times of the things that Jesus told them. But I think there's another aspect of this, and it comes from the statement that they make, didn't our hearts burn within us as he told us the word of God? Didn't our hearts burn within us as we listened? And it made me stop and think, how many times as I'm reading and thinking or maybe listening to something uh, on, on some kind of teaching or the Bible being read, how many times do I sit up and go, oh, wow, and the Lord touches my heart in a special way? Because that's one thing that we should be longing for. Now, I'm not saying that you know, we're into all kinds of strange things and that you can't get up from your knees or can't stop reading the Bible until you feel something. That's not what I'm saying. But what I am saying is that we should be thinking about what is the reality here? Lord God, when I come to your word, I want it to be because I want you to speak to me. When I sit on Sunday morning in church, I want to hear from you. When I'm listening to that guy on the, on the, t- on the, on the radio or the TV, I, I want to hear your words. I think sometimes we go to God's word because maybe we feel guilty or maybe we want to feel a little bit better about something that we've done or I don't know all the reasons and yet the reality is we should go to God's word because we want to hear from God and we want our hearts to burn. And so the question becomes, does the Bible make a difference in how we speak, how we treat others, how we think about others, how we speak or think about our wife or husband or our kids or people that are employees or people that we work with or our boss, our teacher, a co-worker? Do we let God's word impact us so that all of those kinds of relationships are touched by God and, and his work in us? I think Hebrews 4.12 is that kind of a challenge for me. For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any double-edged sword, penetrates even to dividing the soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It judges the thoughts and the attitudes of the heart. So as we go and we listen and we want to hear from God, we can say, Lord, I know that your word is living, it's active, and I pray that you would do something in me and that I would understand, that I would be clear in what it is that you're saying and that I would be able to respond in obedience to you. Let's pray. Lord God, thank you for your word and thank you for the power of your word. Thank you that you work in us through your word. Thank you that you came and that you rose again and all of these things, everything that we have is based on the fact that you lived, died, rose again. And so we celebrate that and we thank you that your word gives us all the wonder of that so that we can let you speak to our hearts through your word. So now we pray that as we leave this place, may we rejoice in our risen Lord and Savior and the word that he's given us. We pray this, Lord God, in your name. Amen. He's risen.
Amen.